Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines of the mainstream news. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, a federal prosecutor in Brazil determined that the bookkeeping maneuver with which twice-elected President Dilma Rousseff had been charged by her right-wing opposition did not constitute a crime. Rousseff's congressional opponents include a number of people themselves facing charges, including bribery, electoral fraud, kidnapping, and homicide. Then, Rousseff was impeached. Many Brazilians are calling it a coup, but the official U.S. position is what now? We'll hear about what's happening in Brazil from Mark Weisbrot of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Also on the show, after Kevin Moore filmed Baltimore police dragging Freddie Gray into a van, he says police came to arrest him with assault weapons and helicopters. Released without charges, Moore said months later police sit outside his son's school and ride past him, taunting him with their phones up. Citizen journalists collecting evidence of violence and abuse by law enforcement are literally providing the content for a social movement. So why are they being harassed and jailed and ignored while corporate journalists collect awards for their work? We'll talk about the importance of legal and journalistic defense of civilian journalists with Shahid Buttar, Director of Grassroots Advocacy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. All of that's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at recent press. In the scandal of the half hour, anyway, libertarian presidential candidate Gary Johnson, when asked in an MSNBC interview what he would do about the battle raging over the Syrian city of Aleppo, responded, quote, what is Aleppo, close quote. Well, the New York Times saw a story in a candidate who is unaware of one of the main battlefields in one of the world's deadliest conflicts. The paper's Alan Rappaport wrote a September 8th story about the gaffe. But, as fair contributor Ben Norton noted in a piece for Salon, that story described Aleppo as the de facto capital of the Islamic State, or ISIS. That's wrong. The de facto capital of ISIS is Raqqa, a city halfway across Syria from Aleppo. This was then changed in an edit to describe Aleppo as a stronghold of the Islamic State. That's also wrong. The main rebel faction in Aleppo is Jabhat al-Nusra, better known as the al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, a bitter rival of ISIS. ISIS itself has little presence in the city. The New York Times ran a correction on its misidentification of Aleppo, but Norton says then they had to run a correction on the correction because the first correction misidentified Aleppo as the capital of Syria. The actual capital of Syria is Damascus. It seems unlikely that Gary Johnson will be president in November, The New York Times, however, will likely continue to be the country's most influential newspaper. Much of that influence derives from the Times' ability to declare what the serious center is politically and who is relegated to the dismissible margins. You saw that power exercised in a September 4th Times report on British politics by Stephen Erlanger. The story focused on Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, or its left-wing leader, Jeremy Corbyn, as the paper has it. The point of the piece is to blame Corbyn for the fact that, quote, the Labour Party is in shambles. Its leader and its members of parliament are in a virtual civil war, and it is deeply unpopular with the broader electorate, close quote. 
Well, Labor's unpopularity is easy to exaggerate. Its projected national share of the vote in the last local elections held in May 2016 was 31 percent, a percentage point ahead of the Conservatives. This is considered unpromising, as opposition parties that are soon to become governing parties generally do better than that. But it's an improvement over May 2015, four months before Corbyn assumed leadership, when Labor trailed by six percentage points. Corbyn's responsibility for Labor's woes, though, is taken for granted by the Times because he's just too far left. Quote, Mr. Corbyn, a man of the hard left who also wants to renationalize the utilities and make Britain non-nuclear, is deeply skeptical of the United States and considers NATO an outdated aggressive alliance. First elected to Parliament in 1983, Mr. Corbyn has always been on Labour's fringe. He supported Hugo Chavez, the leftist Venezuelan strongman, has pushed hard for more spending for the poor, and has been a persistent critic of Israel and supporter of Palestinian statehood. Close quote. Well, the thing is, some of those hard-left positions are widely popular in the U.K., A 2013 poll, for example, found 68% of U.K. voters in favor of nationalizing energy companies and 66% supporting railroad nationalization. When recognition of Palestinian statehood was considered by the U.N. in 2011, a BBC poll found 53% of Britons in favor, only 26% opposed. As for pushing for more spending for the poor, given a choice between labor should offer more for people in poverty and labor should offer more for people on middle incomes, in a poll sponsored by the Trades Union Congress, 44% of UK citizens picked the former versus 29% choosing the latter. The British public is more mixed on the UK's nuclear force, with 51% expressing support for the nation's submarine warheads in an ORB poll and 49% advocating scrapping them. We couldn't find any polling on how the British public felt about Corbyn's attitude toward Hugo Chavez, perhaps because no one thought that this was an issue particularly vital for the UK electorate. It's probably true that Corbyn is more skeptical of the US and NATO than the average Brit, But it's impossible to avoid the impression that certain positions are identified as problematic, not because they're unpopular with Corbyn's constituents, but just because they're unpopular with the New York Times. And finally, as of September 8th, the broadcast news networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, have aired exactly one report on the Dakota Access Pipeline protests since the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe began an encampment against the project in April, according to a search of the Nexus News database. That report aired on the CBS Morning News at 4 a.m. on September 5th. Here it is in its entirety. Quote, National Public Radio reports violence during demonstrations against a proposed oil pipeline in North Dakota. Protesters confronted workers Saturday at a construction site. Police say four private security guards and two guard dogs were hurt. Tribal officials say the construction destroyed an Indian burial ground and cultural sites. While those 48 words are a one-sided retelling of an NPR report, Dakota Access Pipeline Protests in North Dakota Turned Violent, which in turn got most of its information, as well as its anti-protester spin, from an AP story, Oil Pipeline Protest Turns Violent in North Dakota. But the report on NPR's website also contains video footage from Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman, 
who, unlike anyone at the Big Three networks, thought that the largest mobilization of indigenous activists against environmental degradation was worth some original reporting. Democracy Now!'s footage shows the construction project's security guards wielding pepper spray and deploying attack dogs to provoke and injure demonstrators. Violence on the part of the pipeline authorities that was left out of CBS's Rip and Read. Also missing from what is so far all of broadcast TV news' coverage of the Dakota Access protest was any mention of the threat the pipeline poses to water resources. The pipeline crosses the Missouri River just a half mile north of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. Or the climate destruction facilitated by pipelines designed to ship fracked oil out to consumers. But if you're only going to give a story 48 words at 4 o'clock on one morning, there's only so much you can say. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the media watch group FAIR. A crawler at the top of the New York Times website announced breaking news. Dilma Rousseff, accused of misconduct as president, has been impeached, ending the power struggle consuming Brazil. That sounds like an unlikely outcome, even to those who haven't been able to follow all the twists and turns of events in Brazil. But what accounts for the difference between those who see something being resolved in recent political events and those who see something being violated? Joining us now to help sort through things is Mark Weisbrot, co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research and author of Failed, What the Experts Got Wrong About the Global Economy. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Mark Weisbrot. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Well, can you help us understand, especially the last few steps, because the last... I heard was that a court had said that the charges against Dilma Rousseff were not impeachable. And I also seem to remember hearing that Michelle Temer wasn't going to be able to hold office for eight years. So what happened just recently to bring us to this moment? The prosecutor, the federal prosecutor, who was in charge of the case, decided that what she was being impeached for this uh, financial maneuver was not a crime. So that's, I think, very important. And most people don't know that. In fact, most people probably think that she was impeached for something uh, having to do with corruption. But the Senate voted to remove her from office anyway on August 29th. And, of course, that isn't going to uh, settle the question. As for Tamir, who takes over as president... He's been banned uh, by the courts from running for office again for the next eight years, but he doesn't stop him from finishing this two years of Dilma's term. So that's where it stands right now. But there's already been big protests, people demanding new elections because nobody likes uh, Tamir, and a lot of people see it as a coup. Well, that's my understanding, and I'm wondering how, you know, you can get to a place where it sounds like this was a political process working itself out legitimately. And I think one element of that was brought up by Glenn Greenwald on Democracy Now! He said that Brazilian media were playing up the idea that, you know, impeachment is part of the democratic process. That's a thing they do in America and in Europe, and without sort of making the distinction that in the United States, for example, if a president is impeached, the vice president takes over, not the opposition 
party. Yes, well, the the vice president did take over, but he is also with a big opposition party. So it was a coalition government. The Workers' Party won the presidency, but they don't control the the Congress. So basically, this is the right really taking over and trying to reverse the results of the last three uh, elections. I mean, there is some similarity to the United States in the sense, if you remember the Clinton impeachment, I think that was obviously a political move, and ultimately it, it didn't prevail. They actually at least had a couple of crimes. I think that's the difference, or at least alleged crimes. They had obstruction of justice and perjury, and they tried to make it into an impeachable offense, and the Senate decided it wasn't. And here, you know, it is a little more outrageous in Brazil because they didn't really even have a crime. And you did see some criticism of it from the uh, first the head of the Organization of American States, who was a a very staunch U.S. ally, nonetheless criticized, and so did the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, but that's from the OAS also, their independent body. They criticized it too. But in Washington, you had absolutely no criticism at all from NGOs and human rights groups. And in fact, Human Rights Watch, America's Watch Division, the head of that, Jose Miguel Vivanco, actually was quoted in the Brazilian press on the day of the impeachment and praised the democratic process in Brazil and seemed to be very supportive of it. Is there a sense that it's there's some reflection of the popular will going on here, apart from what's happening in terms of the political processes? I mean, it, it is fair to characterize the Brazilian public as unhappy in general terms. There was a reflection of popular will in, in terms of, you know, there's a deep recession and Dilma was unpopular. Right. But on the other hand, nobody wanted Tamer to take over. So there was a big call for new elections, and that's what a lot of people are demanding now. And very few people want this this right-wing government that's going to try and reverse the social and economic progress of the last 14 years. The Workers' Party did do pretty well until just two years ago. They had reduced poverty by 55% and extreme poverty by 65% and doubled the minimum wage in, in real terms. And this government came in, they said they're going to double down on the austerity, and they got rid of the Ministry for Women and Human Rights, and they appointed a cabinet of all white men. So this is really the biggest change without an election since the 1964 coup that brought in the military dictatorship. So I think that's why I don't think it's over yet. I mean, people are definitely going to resist this. And it's unfortunate the United States played uh, such a negative role in the whole thing. That part was really completely ignored in the U.S. press. What should we know about the role that the U.S. in fact played, and what should we be looking out for down the road? Yes, well, we won't know everything for probably a long time, if ever, but we do know, uh, first of all, that on August 5th, John Kerry, Secretary of State, went there and did a joint press conference with the acting uh, foreign minister, Jose Serra, of Brazil, and they praised the new relationship that the United States is going to have with Brazil. And so it was a real strong statement of support without saying we support the coup, because after all, this wasn't even the elected government he was dealing with. This is not a normal protocol for him to do. He should have waited 
until at least it was decided that Dilma was going to be permanently removed from office, even if you think the impeachment process is legitimate, which, as I said, most people didn't, he still didn't have to do that. And that was really a very strong message that they supported this coup. And there was another one prior to that. Back in April, just three days after the lower house of the Brazilian Congress voted to impeach Dilma, you had a meeting between the number three official in the State Department, Tom Shannon, who's also the former U.S. ambassador to Brazil and the one likely making these decisions and what to do about the coup. He met with one of the leaders of the impeachment, Senator Aloysio Nunes from the Brazilian Senate. And this was another and a very early signal, very strong signal that the U.S. was on their side because, again, he didn't have to have that meeting. They weren't going to meet with, say, Dilma, for example. That's the way that they took sides and let everybody know that the U.S. was on the side of this uh, impeachment or coup. Let me just ask you, finally, what were other possible ways forward, and are they still possible? Yeah, I think that this government's going to be very unpopular. The demand for new elections is going to increase. But if that doesn't happen, I think you'll have two years, and then the Workers' Party will come back. Former President Lula da Silva is already uh, pretty much indicated he's going to run. He's popular in the polls. According to the polls now, he would win if the election were held today. So I don't think it's over because, again, you know, this is a real right-wing thing that's going on. This is not what the Brazilian people voted for in the last three elections. We've been speaking with Mark Weisbrot from the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Find their work online at net. Mark Weisbrot, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. If the expression, I can't breathe, holds power for you, it's because of Ramsey Orta. He's the one who held his cell phone camera steady while New York police officer Daniel Pantaleo choked the life out of Eric Garner in July of 2014. Garner was Orta's friend. He used to give Orta's daughter a dollar to spend at the local store every time they walked past. Ramsey Orta's been sentenced to four years in prison, stemming from drug and weapon charges, those that stuck among the many and various police have brought against him since the Garner video came to light. Chris Leday uploaded video of Alton Sterling's killing at the hands of Baton Rouge police. Reporting to work the next day, he was arrested, handcuffed, and shackled by civilian and military officers. First, he fit a description. Then it was assault charges that didn't exist. Finally, it was unpaid traffic tickets. Diamond Reynolds, who filmed the killing of her partner, Philando Castile, handcuffed and held in jail for eight hours, separately from her four-year-old daughter. If you're seeing a frightening pattern here, you're doing more than most mainstream journalists. The targeting of citizen journalists for retaliation by law enforcement would present concerns enough for freedom of speech and for the rights of communities to maintain their own safety were it not matched with a disheartening absence of support from a media establishment that has premised thousands of stories on their world-changing work. Joining us now to talk about what protections exist for civilian journalists and what more may be needed is Shahid Buttar. He's director of grassroots advocacy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He joins us now by phone from San Francisco. Welcome back to Counterspin, Shahid Buttar. 
Thank you so much for having me, Janine. The expression, kill the messenger, comes to mind, uh, or at least fail to support, much less celebrate the messenger, to the extent that they're not sure they do the same thing again. Uh, First of all, regular people who film police actions are on the right side of the law as it exists, aren't they? Absolutely. The First Amendment unambiguously protects the right to observe and record police activities. And the failure of police departments and agents and officers around the country to respect those rights, and similarly the failure of the journalistic profession, I think, generally to stand in solidarity with those rights, that is to say, the right of the press, which does not make a distinction between professional and grassroots journalists, is alarming. And I think this is one of the places where the rubber hits the road in terms of the words in the Constitution and the rights they aim to protect, that being the rubber hitting the road of social practice, and in this case, public safety agencies that perceive any threat to their own political power as analogous to a threat to public safety. And that exactly, of course, is, is precisely gets the relationship wrong, because the people who are capturing police violence on video, they are the ones enhancing public safety here, as well as standing behind very well-settled law that, unfortunately, the agencies and unfortunately, a lot of journalists choose to disregard. Well, let's take a little bit of a look at the legal underpinning there. We do have records on the book that support this right, as you've said, but then something happened. What was it that happened in April in Philadelphia that seemed to perhaps throw some of this into question? Yeah, there was a district court, in uh, U.S. district court in Philadelphia, that held for the first time that the First Amendment did not unambiguously protect the right to record police activities. And in that case, the judge invented a novel standard and then failed to apply it, deciding that the First Amendment only protects the right to record police if the person recording the police is overtly hostile to them, which is preposterous because literally that decision would invite violence, which of course is the first thing the law is supposed to stop or you know replace, as it were. Uh, and so it's, you know, the, the decision would force people who are recording police to announce their hostility in order to gain First Amendment protection, which is basically like asking people to invite getting beaten up or arrested in order to then have a right to go to court. It's preposterous, and it completely inverts transparency, the role of the judiciary. It turns a blind eye to systemic police violence. It's, it's almost like the judiciary giving the middle finger to communities of color that have endured arbitrary police violence for 400 years and are now sparking a discourse around it because of the transparency enabled by cell phones and their use to record police departments. Interestingly enough, this case is absolutely an aberration, and it is being appealed to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals where I expect you know, a modicum of sanity to reemerge and, and rein in that decision and reestablish the well-settled rule that the First Amendment right of the press, if not the 14th Amendment right to equal protection under the laws, or for that matter, the Fifth Amendment right to due process, that the right to record police activities is constitutionally protected. Well, and you're making very clear that it isn't as if we're talking about a, a mere legal abstraction. And of course, the, the context is we're talking about vulnerable people and communities who have this almost accidentally democratic tool or technology that they can use to get some hope of awareness for things that they've lived with forever. And that kind of brings me to the journalistic point. Uh, activist and writer Joe's Mar Trujillo wrote that 
you know, these cop watchers are not only willing and able to do work that reporters, mainstream reporters, either won't or to some degree can't do. They're they're looking at issues of policing that impact communities of color the most. And it matters that they are oftentimes of these communities. They have also Mm -hmm. insights that matter. And what uh, Mm -hmm. Josmar was saying was it's not enough to simply say they should be allowed to film. You know, we really do have to be outraged collectively when they are harassed. And he made the point that for an individual cop watcher, having police arrest you and take your phone and erase your footage, it's like if we raided the offices of CNN, you know, and destroyed their files and their equipment. And and we should see a commensurate response from journalists. I absolutely agree. The only criticism I'd have in some respects is that the concern proves too much. I mean, the, the journalistic profession has been taking it on the chin at the hands of the government for decades. And, you know, to watch the ranks of journalists sort of fail to internalize that attack uh, is, is disappointing. I mean, I go back to the Justice Department monitoring the cell phones of AP journalists in, in Washington, right, or the repeated attempts to force reporters to divulge their sources in the context of investigations of national security leaks, or for that matter, the vilification of whistleblowers, which is no different. I mean, across all of these contexts, what we are talking about is criminalizing transparency to protect illegitimate uses of power. And that, of course, is what the Constitution is supposed to stop, right? We're supposed to be committed as a country to transparency and to reining in arbitrary power. But we actually, in each of these situations, whether it's criminalizing and, and persecuting whistleblowers for revealing fraud, waste, and abuse or lies by executive officials, or whether it's jailing grassroots journalists who are recording the police departments in their communities using arbitrary violence to, in some cases, kill people extrajudicially, without ever proving guilt of any offense at all, let alone a serious one, while, and I'll just throw in an added gloss here, you know, this is at the same time, mind you, that senior executive officials do lie about grave issues of global importance and get away with it. So we have hyper-persecutory, relentless, violent, so-called justice for the powerless. We have permissive, blind-eye you know, no modicum of justice for the powerful and the transparency that the citizen journalists are providing. I should say civilian journalists, because in a lot of cases, you know, people with cell phones include undocumented people who are recording ways in which all of our constitutional rights are being violated. It's a profound public service done by these journalists. And I, I dare say that the authoritarian hammer has already fallen in lots of arenas, and I dare say that the clarion call to journalists to take seriously the threat to transparency, that was sounded years ago. What we see in the arbitrary arrest and the co-optation of some judges in this paradigm of suppressing transparency and reports of police violence, I think, is the escalation of that clarion call. And I do hope very much that journalists take it upon themselves as a profession to challenge the suppression of transparency in whatever form it, it might emerge. We've been speaking with Shahid Buttar, Director of Grassroots Advocacy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Find them online at EFF.org. Shahid Buttar, thanks very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much for having me, Janine. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.